Everybody, it's Brian Nemhauser, uh, Hawk Blogger at Hawk Blogger on Twitter or HawkBlogger.com is hopefully where you found me. And uh, it is Labor Day weekend. It is September. What is it today? I want to say it's September seventh. That sounds right. It's Monday. We are a mere three days away from the NFL football season beginning. And I am excited to be back talking with all of you. Should be a lot of good stuff uh, on the site this week. A lot of good conversations. A lot of people excited about football being back in our lives. And I got a ton to cover tonight. It's been a while since I've had a chance to do a podcast. So I'm going to try to hit a bunch of pieces here. Uh, I want to thank all of you, by the way, um, for all you've been reading and and tweeting and, and commenting and sharing my stuff. It was a record month on hawkblogger.com. Um, well over 100,000 people came to read uh, what I wrote, what other folks on the, the, the staff wrote. Um, I say staff as if we have a an official staff, but we've got some volunteers. And uh, as I think most of you know, all the proceeds that come from ad revenue or anything made by hawkblogger.com goes directly to Ben's Fund at the end of each year. Uh, last year, we were able to donate $7,500. Uh, I usually kick in on top of what um, I get in terms of ad revenue. And I don't put a lot of time into how to make money off of the site, as you probably can tell. I don't have, I barely have time to write what I write and do my full time job and be a dad and all that good stuff. So one of the things that gets lost is the chance to really market the site and get sponsors and figure out how to make real money off of it. Um, but you'll notice there's there's a little bit of some, some ads on there that are a little bit annoying. They annoy me at, at times, but they're also um, paying at a pretty good rate. And so I'm hoping, um, I'm pretty confident I'm going to have a record year to donate to Ben's Fund. I think it's good. As always, if there's folks that are interested in sponsoring these podcasts or sponsoring the site... Um, I'm always open. I'd love to get local sponsors and, and uh, um, you know, try to really build out the site in a way that's meaningful both to the community as well as, um, you know, to me and, and, and to, uh, to a great charity in Ben's Fund. So enough about that. We just uh, have been through a action-packed cut-down week. It is a weekend, I should say. It's always a little bittersweet, um, having had the chance to to know a lot of these guys and get to see them off the field, get to kind of understand um, what it means to be a football player, and, and I can't claim to know, but I've observed a little bit, and these are real people, despite the fact that they're almost cartoon characters to most of us, and we think about them as fantasy football league or, or these superheroes that we see on the sun on Sundays and they do these amazing things and they wear these amazing uniforms, but they're really just like any of us. And, um, what's different is the fact that they've dedicated their entire lives up until this point to this single purpose. And for a lot of them, this weekend is not something they look forward to. They're not eager to see what the final roster is they're hoping that they still get to keep their dream alive and keep getting to do something that gives them a ton of satisfaction and validation and for the vast majority of players that are attempting this that's not what this weekend is it is about a door closing and it is about a decision of whether they should continue to fight whether they should continue to play whether they should continue to try. And the alternative is pretty scary. They don't necessarily have a job lined up that hasn't even been their mindset all along the way in many cases. And you could say, oh, that's that's their fault. But I don't see it that way. I mean, 
in order to reach this level of achievement in any field, it takes a, a level of, you know, myopic focus on on what you are trying to accomplish and you have to almost be obsessed so to then reach a point where someone says you know you aren't quite good enough not only is that pretty crushing from an emotional standpoint but it's also leaves you really flailing uh so i i see these situations where players don't make the team um they're they're high quality athletes they're high quality people and now they're off to figure out what's the next thing they can do in life and uh it's pretty humbling and going back to their hometowns where people know they didn't make it and it's not that they went to an amazing college and were an amazing college player it's that they didn't make it that's what people remember so it's it's a it's a tough one. Um, at the same time, some dreams come true on on this weekend. Uh, a lifetime of of focus and effort and sacrifice turn into an opportunity. And so, you know, the Seahawks. Uh, I had written an article. I think hopefully most of you saw it. It got picked up. It became the most read article I've ever written. I think uh, well over fifty thousand people have read it as of today. And, uh, it was detailing that the Seahawks roster easily, in my opinion, the most talented roster in the NFL. I think there's lots of ways to debate that. Uh, but you know, there's been more cuts from the Seahawks roster that have been picked up by other teams. 34 as a, as a matter of fact, over the last four years than any other roster in the NFL. And by a decent margin, I think the next closest is 26. So eight more players. The Seahawks have a lot of depth of talent. They have a lot. They have a great scouting department. They've obviously been doing things that few other teams have in the last few years. And so, you know, when they make cuts, it's a big deal. But what's interesting is that this this roster which you know, I believe is the most talented in the NFL, and I think most people would agree, this roster is made up of undrafted free agents and seventh-round draft picks. Over half of this roster either were not drafted at all or were drafted in the very last round. I think that says a lot about this team. And I looked and did some comparisons didn't have a chance to do an exhaustive <laughs> uh, cataloging of every roster and where people came from, but the Patriots another very talented roster, and they have a you know a significant difference in the amount of undrafted free agents they have compared to the Seahawks. So Seattle is different in that way, and they have done a really good job of opening up competition to anybody regardless of pedigree and coaching people up understanding what their strengths are putting them in positions to succeed and another key that doesn't get talked about as much is they play those guys as early as possible Uh, Pete Carroll tries to get rookies into a role where they can contribute right away and it's not just special teams Cam Chancellor famously his rookie year people forget Lawyer Malloy was the starting strong safety Cam Chancellor was a goal line safety. He would come in into goal line situations, sometimes into, you know, fourth and short kind of situations. And that was a role, and he did it well. You know, he did it because Cam Chancellor is who he is. And that just getting your feet wet and feeling like you're part of the team and that there's something you can contribute, I think is a, a fundamental aspect of how the Seahawks have managed to coach up and engage those players right away. Um, And it's also, you know, one of the things that was very surprising and in retrospect, a real sign about why the Kristen Michael thing didn't work out. You know, they had this guy who had obvious talent and he barely stepped on the field. So that should have been a, a, a clear warning sign that, that they just, there's something really wrong. 
And I think all of us knew that there was, but you know, from my angle, I saw talent and I believe in the Seahawks ability, the coaching staff's ability to get talent, getting, you know, more out of people than they even realize. And the thought that they'd have a player with as much talent as Kristen Michael on the roster and not figure out a way to utilize him. I didn't think that was going to be possible. I honestly didn't. Uh, a lot of people look at this and say it's it's clearly a failure of Christian Michael. I think mostly that's true, but I am uh, I'm a little surprised that this coaching staff was not able to get the most out of him. And and I think that we need to acknowledge that this coaching staff is not infallible. This is a coaching staff that thought they could get the most out of Percy Harvin. That didn't work out. You know, they signed Mike Williams to a, a contract after his breakout year in 2010. Didn't work out. Um, this has been a team, you know, we've got John Moffitt. <laughs> you know, that didn't work out. There, it's not that every player hits. Um, but the point I'm, I'm looking at here is they don't always find a way to maximize a player. And that's a little different than a bust. It doesn't mean that a player was not what they thought in terms of their talent level. I think Kristen Michael was every bit as talented as they thought he was. I think what happened there is he simply could not commit to being where he needed to be when he needed to be there on the football field. And this is a team that more than almost anything else values consistency and Christian Michael did not hit the hole he was asked to hit he would hit the hole that he decided to hit bad idea Tom Cable doesn't like that Christian Michael initially was not that willing to pass protect he grew into that but he wasn't necessarily doing it all the time Christian Michael would hit a play exactly on time and with authority and get great yardage and then he'd run the wrong way or have the wrong play and put his team in peril because of it and so I was the probably biggest card-carrying member of the Christian Michael hype club I believe that if he, you know, my, my tack all along was if he ever became the featured running back for the Seahawks. And that meant that he had earned his way to being able to do that. But if he was on the field and had the carries that Marshawn Lynch carries, he would actually rush for more yards than Marshawn Lynch. I still believe that. Not because I think Kristen Michael's a better player than Marshawn Lynch, but I think that his explosive running ability is greater than Marshawn Lynch's. And I think he wouldn't have necessarily even been a better running back. I don't think choosing someone being better as a running back is based purely on the yards they gain. I think it's also about pass protection and it's about getting the, the tough yards that you need on second and two versus, you know, eight yards on first and 10 or, you know, a 40 yard breakout run. But I think Kristen Michael had continues to have the talent. He just doesn't have the head for it. And so when I saw that he was traded, it wasn't a shock. You know, as soon as we heard about Fred Jackson, I had posted the article talking about the kind of options. And the most obvious was being that, that Kristen Michael would get traded to another team. My hope was that it wasn't going to be the Dallas Cowboys. A second option would be that Fred Jackson replaced Robert Turbin. And it turns out that really what they went for is getting rid of both guys. And Turbin was injured, so I don't know that he would have lost his roster spot if he hadn't been injured. But honestly, Robert Turbin really... Nice guy, someone that's you know easy to cheer for, but was limited. Never was going to be a starting running back. This is the last year of his deal. Hard to imagine them re-signing him. 
And so for me, looking at Fred Jackson versus Robert Turbin, there's really no comparison. Fred Jackson is 34 years old, and that's about the only bad thing regarding Fred Jackson. He is a physical runner. He is disciplined. He is a great receiver out of the backfield. He's a great pass protector. He is a quality citizen and member of the community. You know, he's got, not that Robert Turbin isn't, but um, Fred Jackson is really a perfect backup for someone like Marshawn Lynch. And then, really, you know, knowing Kristen Michael is not that yet, and knowing that the Seahawks just, I think they're fed up. I think the San Diego game was the game that they just lost it with him. Uh, I think that you then end up with, I want to get rid of Kristen Michael, and we'll take what we can get to do that. And Thomas Rawls had a decent preseason. You know, I, I, I'm going to continue to have my foot on the brakes of the, the Thomas Rawls hype train. <laughs> I think I like Thomas Rawls. I think Thomas Rawls has the potential to be a very solid backup running back. Um, I think he's a good blocker. I think he's a decisive runner. I think he is a willing, um, you know, pass protector, all that, all that stuff. Good receiver, all those things. Um, and I probably repeated myself on a couple of those, but he is a solid all around running back. He also does not have anything about him that strikes me as special. That makes me think this guy could be a real featured number one running back. And that's okay. He doesn't have to be. Um, I think this was less about Thomas Rawls beating out Kristen Michael and more about the Seahawks deciding they just don't want to see Kristen Michael anymore on their, on their roster. And the fact that they got a conditional seventh round pick for what was a second round pick a few years ago, uh, for a guy that many around the league knows his talent level, uh, you know, says a lot. So gone is Kristen Michael. Gone is Robert Turbin. Welcome to Fred Jackson and Thomas Rawls. And then Rod Smith, who of, of the two, Thomas Rawls and Rod Smith, I very much prefer Rod Smith as a future feature back. I think Rod Smith was showed some real upside. I think he, he is an interesting runner. I think there's a lot of things about his game he needs to kind of round out and hopefully he's got a better head on his shoulders than Kristen Michael did, but he's on the practice squad and hopefully, you know, he becomes someone next year that they can consider as uh, part of the competition. Um, if Marshawn chooses to, to move on. So the running back position is an interesting one. I think the Seahawks are better off now than they were at any time last year and we'll see how this combination of Fred Jackson and Marshawn Lynch work together some ways I think it'll be really fun for Marshawn Lynch to have his buddy in the backfield again with him and I think that could be could be a really positive thing for the locker room and and for the Seahawks um Unfortunately, it's not all about positive things in the Seahawks locker room. I think we all know that Camp Chancellor's not here yet, as of now, hasn't reported. And, you know, from from my understanding, um, there are things that the Seahawks would have liked to have done for, for Camp Chancellor to get him in. Um, I don't know that the only people involved in these discussions are the players and the front office. I think people have to remember that um, there are people that pay the bills who care about how these things play out and care about how their money's getting spent. And so I think this is a complicated situation and Cam Chancellor I understand why why fans are frustrated with him. He signed the deal. He didn't have to sign the deal. 
He did. It's got a lot of time left on it. Uh, he's paid well. And he's well-respected. And there's really no reason to think the Seahawks have any interest in walking away from him anytime soon. But there's something going on here. I mean, I don't think that Cam Chancellor just up and holds out for no reason and takes this hard line for no reason. There's something going on. There's something that was said, something that we don't know. There's a saying at my office, you know, be careful about flipping the bozo bit. The concept there is it's easy to assume that the person on the other end that you haven't talked to and that you don't know and you don't have the context for is an idiot and is doing something stupid because they're stupid. Nine times out of 10, maybe 9.5 times out of 10, that's not true. There's information you don't have. There is even the potential that you would have made the same choice in the same situation. But, you know, the easy thing is to assume that someone else is wrong and, and harass them about it. So with Cam Chancellor, I think this is a very proud and disciplined man. I don't expect him back for the, the Rams game. I don't know if he's going to play another game for the Seahawks. And this is when I got wrong, to be quite honest. I told you guys on here before camp when this all started going on, don't even pay attention to it. He'll be back by game one. And in 99.9% of the situations, um, that's what happens. You know, Holdouts happen. Sabres are rattled. Compromises are made. Players come to camp. Everything's fine. Um, this one's different. This one's different. And, you know, the farther, the more it goes, the the harder it's going to be to come back from. You know, we've we saw the Joey Galloway holdout back in the Mike Holmgren era. And that lasted through eight games. And then Galloway came back for the last part of the season. And then he was traded away the next year. At that point, they got two first-round picks for him from Dallas. You know, I think the Seahawks want a lot for Cam Chancellor. I don't know that there's anyone that's going to give up what they really want in return. And so there's really not a, an upside for the Seahawks considering a trade. You know, they don't want to set a precedent of rewarding players for holding out. And the idea of trading a player who's holding out so that he can get a new contract is a way of rewarding them and giving them what they want. And so I think the Seahawks are probably going to make this pretty tough on Cam, and eventually I think he's going to have to concede or retire. And, you know, we've seen young retirees in the NFL. I don't think it's completely out of the question to think that he'll walk away from the game. It's also not out of the question that by the time you listen to this podcast, he's already reported. You don't know. I don't know him. I don't know what makes him tick. Um, I don't know the situation. I don't know what really matters to him the most. So what I do know is that he's a damn good football player. There's nobody that can replace him. I see bullshit on Twitter about we drafted Cam. What makes us think we're not going to find another one? Folks, there's one Cam Chancellor. There's one Earl Thomas. You don't, just because you find them once does not mean you're going to find them again. We drafted Cortez Kennedy a long time ago. We're not going to draft another Cortez Kennedy, folks. It, it doesn't happen. We drafted Steve Largent a few decades ago. We're not going to draft another Steve Largent. These guys come along once in a lifetime, and he is uniquely fit for the way this Seahawks defense plays for the way this defense was formed, for the people that are part of this defense. And it's been an absolute honor to, to get to watch him play and put his, you know, put his body on the line game after game. And my perspective on this is I just hope to get a chance to see that again. I hope that we get a chance to see him play. I hope we get a chance to see him happy back with his teammates. And first teammates to be happy that he's back. That's what I hope for. 
I hold nothing against Cam, and I hold nothing against the Seahawks. It's tough. It's a tough situation, and um, I understand why people are frustrated with him. I don't have enough energy in my life to spend it hating on people for trying to get paid what they want to get paid. Um, you know, he's going to get natural consequences in the form of not getting paid, um, ironically. So uh, let's hope for the best. But in the meantime, we've got a new starting safety, Dion Bailey. Um, he's a guy that I did pick out as someone who I expected to be the Jerron Johnson of this year, the new Jerron Johnson, the third safety that would come in and be a playmaker. I really liked what I saw from him last year before he got hurt. He started out hurt again this year in, in training camp, but came back and just took over that position. Um, Deshaun Shedd had been there, and Deion Bailey just really was the better player. And I don't think that he's Cam Chancellor. I do think that he is a solid tackler. I think he's a good athlete. I do not think he is a disaster in that position at all. I think he's likely going to be out of position sometimes, though. Um, and I do have some questions about how he'll match up in coverage. I've not seen him in coverage and how well he does, especially against something like a tight end. Um, you know, Cam Chancellor against Vernon Davis is different than Dion Bailey against Vernon Davis. And yes, Vernon Davis has not done much against the Seahawks for the last few years or really much anyone else. But Cam Chancellor has been damn good at guarding tight ends. So... You know, that's something I'll kind of want to see with Dion Bailey and um, this acquisition of Kelsey McCray from the, the Chiefs. I know nothing about Kelsey McCray, so I'm not going to pretend that I do. Uh, I think the fact that the Seahawks spent a fifth-round draft choice to acquire him says a lot. <laughs> uh, I think it it says that they really wanted him and that they really needed him and that the Chiefs did not necessarily have any plans to give him up so I tend to feel like the Seahawks normally in a normal situation probably wouldn't have given up more than a sixth round pick for someone like McCray I think he's probably like a Marcus Burley like they did last year when they got Burley late the way they got McCray but I think the Chiefs know that the Seahawks are hurting for safety and held out and managed to get a fifth out of them and that's a big deal. Um, they're going to miss that pick next year. But um, they obviously believed enough in what McCray brought to the table that they added him to the mix. And knowing that they had guys like Ronald Martin, like Keenan Lambert, in camp and chose to cut those guys, both of who were picked up, both of whom were picked up by other teams and are on other NFL rosters means that they think that this guy's better than them. And Ronald Martin was a good safety. I think he's going to be, he has potential to be a starter one day. I think Keenan Lambert has a potential to be a starter one day. So I'm kind of curious if McCray becomes um, the starter at some point, supplants Bailey, and Bailey's able to play that Jerron Johnson, you know, third safety spot, which I think he's, Honestly, I think he's really well suited for. He's just a playmaker naturally, and I think that's a more free-roaming position that has less responsibility. Um, if McCray is a little bit more disciplined than Bailey, he might be the better partner for Earl Thomas back there. So that'll be one to watch. I doubt McCray would start in the first week, though. So you know he'll be a special teams guy. He may get some snaps, but you know Bailey's going to likely be that guy and. Thankfully, they're going against um, you know Nick Foles and and a really faulty offensive line that should be under pressure a lot. So hopefully they can hold up through that. By week two, things shit gets real. <laughs> you're in Green Bay, you're facing Aaron Rodgers, uh, good offensive line. Better expect that the the secondary is going to get tested. So um, you know I think. My internal clock is, you know, if Cam Chancellor's back by that game, then I think we're in decent shape with Cam. Um, if he's not back by that game, I don't think we're going to see him until, you know, he has to report in order to accrue a season, which is midway through the year. So, um, speaking of, of the secondary, 
Um, you know, I think that that's going to be uncharacteristically of this team, a, a challenging area. I think Earl Thomas will play in this first game. I don't think we know whether he's going to be durable throughout this season. This is his first injury. He got surgery and more concerning to me than anything else that's gone on is he made the comment of, you know, this injury has really made me question how much I love this game. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. Come on, Earl. You love the game. Don't go anywhere because um, we really need Earl Thomas. And he made similar comments last year after losing to the Chargers that, you know, losing really reminded him how much he loved this game and re- kind of rekindled his fire. All those comments imply to me that, you know, the fire is kind of uh, not burning as brightly with Earl. And I think it's something to kind of watch. And, you know, as I've said before, you know, earlier now, the NFL is a little different now than it used to be. Players can up and decide they're done. And and they've seen other players do it, and that can happen. So uh, I am... I guess paranoid. Uh, now I watch that stuff and listen and probably overanalyze, but um, I think we have to see most importantly is can Earl Thomas stay healthy and stay on the field as he has throughout his career. Um, and then, you know, Kerry Williams is opposite Richard Sherman and everyone's assuming Kerry Williams. is going to be terrible. You know, I'm going to give the guy more of a, a little bit more leash than that. Um, he's a veteran. He's played well for Baltimore in the past. Um, let's see how he looks. I was not all that impressed with what I saw in the preseason, but I also didn't see him um, as a total disaster. So let's see how that looks. I'm a little more concerned with the nickel corner position. Marcus Burley's there. Ty Smith is there. Um, what I'm curious about is I think Therald Simon is – poised to take that starting role from Kerry Williams. I don't know how long it's going to take, but Therald Simon, it really feels like he's already the better option um, at, at on the edge at corner. I don't think Therald Simon's a, a good fit inside, but it'd be interesting to see if they try that. I'm more curious if Kerry Williams would make sense as a nickel corner, and it wouldn't shock me to see that. Um, we'll kind of have to see how how and when the Therald Simon thing develops. I like Marcus Burley. I think that he did okay in that role last year, but he wasn't great. And I don't think he's been great this preseason. So, you know, it's not Walter Thurmond, and it's not Byron Maxwell. Um, You remember part of when the Seahawks really started playing well at the end of last season on defense is when Therald Simon actually started on the outside and – um, Byron Maxwell would uh, slide inside to nickel in a lot of situations. And he did fantastic in the Philadelphia game um, doing just that. So, you know, I, I think we're going to have to play around with that. I think that this is a decent first week opponent to, to kind of learn a little bit about where in the secondary um, there might be some strength, hopefully, that, that – we can discover and rely on. Um, but it's going to be a, a growth process, a learning process back there, um, especially without, you know, the two safeties both being in place. You know, if you have three out of four players as Pro Bowl, all pro level players, you can get away with the fourth one being a little bit less than that or the fifth one. Um, when you've got two all pro level players. Now most of your your defense, your secondary is um, is suspect. So I think you know you have to you have to see you have to see those guys in action to really know. Um, I'm I'm more confident in Dion Bailey than I am in either Marcus Burley or Kerry Williams. But I also am confident in the Seahawks coaching staff and their willingness to slide Therald Simon in and rotate him. He might not be named the starter. But I wouldn't be surprised if he's getting snaps as early as week one. Um, other places, problem areas for the Seahawks, as obviously are, are the offensive line. And um, 
I <laughs> I am in the uh, minority, I think. This offensive line, I see promise. I see potential. I am admittedly suckered in. That's probably the wrong phrase even, but I am... I'm drawn in by Gary Gilliam at right tackle and his ability to pass protect. Tom Cable just, you know, he does not value pass protection the way I am accustomed to coaches valuing pass protection. So I've gotten used to seeing him choose players over and over again that struggle in that area because they're good in run blocking and run blocking is almost impossible to scout when you're just kind of watching um, without understanding how it's being coached or what the responsibilities are or without watching the tape back and forth over and over again. Pass blocking is a lot easier. You can see when guys are getting beat 1v1. You can see when guys are physically getting beat or um, you know, from a technique perspective or a variety of ways. And so when Gary Gilliam slid into right tackle and I got to watch him go up against the Cliff Averills and Bruce Irvins and Michael Bennett's and whoever else they threw at him and he held his own, wasn't perfect. He does get beat. Those are some of the best pass rushers in the NFL, but he is significantly better at pass protection than Justin Britt ever was last year. He's better than Breno Giacomini ever was. He's certainly better than James Carpenter ever was at right tackle. And so I have seen, you know, dial back the way, way back machine to when um, Mike Holmgren was here and the Seahawks had not yet ascended. And it was really the year that Holmgren ended up almost losing his job. I want to say 2002. And the Seahawks were struggling. They were not going to make the playoffs. And they signed Chris Terry from the Panthers as a free agent and put him in the lineup at right tackle. Walter Jones was the left tackle. And all of a sudden, that offense took off. Matt Hasselback threw for over 400 yards in two of the last five games. The offense exploded. They just scored, and they moved the ball. Corin Robinson became a player. And it was all really tied back to having good edge protection with a good right tackle. The Seahawks valued it so much that they signed Chris Terry the next year to a big extension. It turned out to be a mistake because he kind of fell off the, the face of the planet. But luckily for them, Sean Locklear came around. And Sean Locklear ended up in his second year starting at right tackle, replacing what was kind of a hodgepodge of Chris Terry and Floyd Porkchop Womack at right tackle. Chris Terry played, or sorry, um, Sean Locklear played right tackle in 2005 which as I think you should remember was a pretty good year for the Seahawks and that offense was the most prolific offense in the history of the franchise scored the most points over 28 a game and as much as they were known for running the football Matt Hasselbeck had the highest passer rating of any quarterback in the NFC that year the highest passer rating of his career the highest passer rating of franchise history until Russell Wilson came along so I have seen it over and over again that if you can get good edge protection, that buys you a lot. And it's something that Russell Wilson's never had here. And I'm not sure he will be able to take advantage of it because he's a very different quarterback than Matt Hasselback. But I sure as heck would rather have it than not. So I'm excited about Gary Gilliam. I think he's a, a great addition. I think he's a big upgrade. And I have uh, high hopes for, for what that's going to mean um, and how that's going to ripple through the line. Now, Justin Britt at left guard, bit rough. 
I think Justin Britt is a bit rough in pass protection, almost probably no matter where you put him. I think he is a hard worker and should improve. He certainly cannot be any worse pass protecting at left guard than he was at right tackle. So that's going to be something that, you know, even if he is not great there, James Carpenter wasn't a great pass protector at left guard. Um, Paul McQuiston wasn't necessarily a great pass protector at left guard. They've gone through a number of left guards that were not great at pass protection. Um, we know J.R. Sweezy is not great at pass protection at right guard. So, you know, it's not the end of the world. I think Justin Britt is a strong run blocker, and I think pairing him with Russell Kung is promising and should be interesting. And then Drew Nowak, and it is Nowak, not Nowak. Um, Drew Nowak is a guy that, you know, he's he's ahead of Patrick Lewis. And so that let's use that as a barometer. Um, you know, he beat out Lemuel Jean-Pierre, who got cut and is not signing with any other team. So I don't think that's a particularly great validation of, of his talents. But Patrick Lewis started a few games for the Seahawks last year, and the Seahawks won those games. Um, I don't know if they won all of the games, but they won a decent amount of them. And the offense did okay. I think the first game against Arizona, they gave up a ton of sacks, and there was problems with protection calls and mix-ups, and it was pretty ugly in that way. Seahawks managed to win anyway. But knowing that Nowak is ahead of Patrick Lewis, knowing that Patrick Lewis actually showed some real improvement towards the end of preseason, you know, gives me some hope there. I am, I'm concerned about that. Um, you know, there's a bunch of you that have asked me for ages, you know, about the, my strong negative reaction to the Jimmy Graham trade that, that had sent Max Unger the other way. This was why, I mean, we have to wait until we get into the season to see how the middle of that line performs. Drew is going to find and see players that he's never had to go against before. He's going to have like every game is going to be a new experience. Every front could be a front that he really hasn't seen before or in a situation he hasn't seen before or in a stadium he hasn't had to play before or you know, in weather he hasn't had to snap in before. There's going to be all sorts of things that are new for him, and we have to give him that opportunity to learn and grow. But <laughs> None of us are that patient. None of us want to see learning and growing happening unless you're starting from a very high position and you're learning and growing to be great. So... I don't think we know what he is yet. Um, you can't trust what the Seahawks are saying because they're going to say whatever positive things they can say because that's who the Seahawks are. We're going to know pretty dang soon with Noak where he's starting from. He's going to have Aaron Donald on his nose, and Aaron Donald makes everybody look bad. He made Max Unger look bad at times. So um, not an easy way to start. Nick Fairley, Aaron Donald, um, you know, Really tough line. Luckily, it'd probably be quiet. You could probably hear a pin drop in in uh, the Edward Jones Dome in St. Louis. But that's going to be a something to watch. So I think they're going to the best way to help a line not have to be on their heels is to run the ball, and they're going to do their best to get this team off and running and. Everyone else is going to be doing their best to stop them. So uh, it's cat and mouse game. And, you know, it wouldn't shock me to see the Seahawks just go the total opposite direction. One of these times, one of these times, the Seahawks are going to pass to open up the run. Just to completely throw off a defense that is com that is totally prepared, lined up to jam the run, and the Seahawks are going to involve Tyler Lockett. They're going to involve Jimmy Graham. They're going to involve Doug Baldwin. And all of a sudden, the defense will be on their heels trying to figure out who this passing team is. And that's when the Seahawks will come back with a counter and, and run it right down their throats. I'm looking forward to when that game comes. Um, I don't think it's going to be the norm, but I think they have to put that on tape against some team in order to, to keep teams from just loading up on the against the, the run from the beginning of the game. 
Um, and we've seen the old Seahawks line from 2012, from 2013, face eight-man fronts and run the ball anyway and run with some success. We haven't seen this group do that. So that's something we're going to learn, and they're going to learn. Um, so speaking of learning... I uh, had made my roster projections the way that I always do. And this year I got 47 out of the 53 right, I think. Um, And I think for me, more importantly, I um, had the roster projections, the number they'd keep at each position, right in every case except for, I had them keeping four running backs, they kept five. And I had them keeping seven linebackers. They kept six. So I'm still a little confused about how Eric Pinkins got cut in order to keep Will Tukuafu. That's one that I'm going to have to see how they use Tukuafu. I I really don't like that choice. I'm not Pete Carroll. I'm not John Schneider. They're the ones that have the, the um, experience. And I bow to that. But I also, you know, I've been a fan for a long time. I've seen Mike Holmgren. I've seen, um, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting. Uh, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. But the uh, the old oh, Tim Ruskell. Wow, I've really tried to erase his name from my mind. But there have been guys that are paid to do the job, and I have known better than them. I'll be quite honest. I, I, I've criticized decisions they've made as soon as they've made it. I have anticipated decisions that that their predecessors would make that made better sense. So I'm not perfect. Um, I'm not saying I am, but I do have a lot more respect for John Schneider and Pete Carroll, and they've taught me a ton. So I always just pause when they do something that I really don't understand. And in this case, I don't understand it. I don't get why you keep two fullbacks. Derek Coleman is a is a core special teams player. He is your best special teams player, and he's a fine fullback. He's not great, um, but the fullback plays a fraction of the snaps for this offense. So I'm not sure what they have in mind there. Um, maybe when Cam Chancellor comes back, that's the place they'll cut from. I don't know. Um, but that one was curious. And uh, the fact that really that cost Eric Pinkins a spot, if you look at it that way, um, if they had gone with the projections I had, which was seven linebackers, Pinkins would be the next guy on. He's on the practice squad right now. But he is a really good special teams player. Um, and... You know, he was showing some promise at linebacker. I don't think he was great yet, but I think he was he's a good enough special teams player to, to merit some consideration there. So the other thing it could be is that it's not the way they plan to utilize Will Tukuafu, but it could be that he plays a role on special teams as a blocker or as a, you know, wedge buster that a guy like Eric Pinkins couldn't play. And so it was purely a special teams decision based on what they need. Greg Scruggs, for example, was a guy that played on a lot of the special teams. Um, He got cut. So they might need some of the bigger players um, available for special teams. That might be the whole reason. Um, We'll have to kind of see. But that was one that that for me was a learning. um, And I'm going to continue to learn about that. Um, We've already talked about how, you know, what I think I have learned around the Kristen Michael situation. Um, another one that, that I had wrong was I had T.Y. McGill above DeMarcus Dobbs and David King. Um, and turns out, um, I also had Jesse Williams above both of those guys. And I still think that, um, you know, McGill's a guy that I really hope doesn't come back to to bite us. Um, I think that he's a, I mean, he's a rookie. I think that he shows real promise, um, at the three technique defensive tackle spot, um, as a run stuffer and as a penetrator, Pete Carroll kind of made a comment in one of his press conferences that, you know, acknowledged that he does make plays, 
but he's making them sometimes uh, in ways that he doesn't understand. Uh, Pete Carroll doesn't understand because, you know, they're kind of outside the scheme is the way he put it. And, you know, maybe he's getting fortunate, he said, but uh, he is making plays. And so we have to give them credit for it. So Pete Carroll seemed kind of grudgingly uh, praising T.Y. McGill, but really it was more of a criticism that he was not playing within the framework of the, the the defense and his freelancing was working well enough that he was getting some plays, but was not what the Seahawks wanted around. So I think the lesson learned there is that it's not necessarily the plays that you make. It's uh, also how you make them. And, and um, if the coaching staff really saw great things there, they probably would have had him a little bit higher in the depth chart. They've definitely, you know, David King's been a guy they've had high in the depth chart through training camp and he's made some plays, but I thought Jesse Williams and McGill were more disruptive and um, both of them got cut. So with Jesse Williams, I think there's a chance that, you know, maybe, I don't know if I have no idea what the prognosis is, if there's really a chance he'll improve or if this is as good as he's going to get physically, but I thought he was playing good football. Uh, You know, I thought he was, he was penetrating into the backfield, and and I thought there was a lot of promise to what I was seeing there, but they let him go. And he even mentioned in his Instagram account that he was 80%. So he's acknowledging that he's not what he wants to be. So maybe that comes back. Um, T.Y. McGill getting picked up by um, the Colts. You know, uh, see how that turns out. I, I, I have a bad feeling about that one. Um, I, I think we're going to regret that decision, but um, John Schneider's had a really good track record of not making decisions too often that we regret, and hopefully this this turns into uh, one that that fits into that category. So I think we're going to call that a wrap for this edition of the Hawk Blogger Podcast. I am going to try to arrange a predictions podcast with my buds, some of them over at Field Goals and some other places. We try to get them on the line and see if we can talk a little bit of Seahawks before the first game of the season. Also, hopefully, get a chance to talk to Softy again, and we'll get that kicked off again this year, um, uh, depending on how much time we can find. But uh, love being back. Love having a chance to talk with all of you. Appreciate your readership, your your listening, and um, you know, always enjoy talking with you guys on Twitter or whenever we get to meet in person. So. Take care. Have a wonderful week leading into football. And as always, uh, go Hawks.